Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. long ago a wee one was born into the family. Someone snapped a shot of the baby's hands and those hands became the inspiration for the following poem. Hands of life reach out for the unknown, grasping, searching for what God has sown in the weight of a faith not yet shown. Hands vulnerable and innocent filled with a youth that is not yet bent by choices that are still to be spent. Distant horizons sparkle in the sun as time is let loose to run through hands struggling with deeds to be done. Hands of hope, hands of uncertainty, needing to learn how living can be a way to truth and identity. What secrets will these hands reveal, groping about, looking for the real amidst falsehoods that events conceal. Unseen burdens rest upon these hands, hard-fought struggles in shifting sands on beachheads of future warring lands. Whose troubled face will these hands caress? Which mysteries will these hands address? What weighty problems will they assess? Hands of potential that can reach and touch our hearts in so many ways with such joy and pain that are at times too much. For these untested hands, let us pray that God will bless them every day with a faith that triumphs over dismay. The title of the following story is Original Intent. Spectrum Learning Associates was a model of modern enterprise, both with respect to the diversity of its integrated line of products and services, as well as in relation to its organizational structure. Many business schools and textbooks use SLA as a paradigmatic case study of how to run a corporation. 
An increasing number of universities, colleges, technical institutes, high schools, and early learning facilities had adopted its varied curricular packages and also were implementing its teaching model. In addition, the company was constantly developing an array of software and technological innovations which complemented and enhanced its written materials on a variety of levels. Bonus programs, stock options, and other kinds of incentive arrangements had spurred the company to a steady increase in sales over the last decade. Furthermore, an open and flexible style of communication that encouraged employees to make a significant number of decisions without having to consult higher levels of management had thereby stimulated production, research, and company morale. With so many positive indicators synergistically combining together, why was Joe Wilson concerned? The answer was as straightforward as it was difficult to convey to ears and hearts that weren't receptive to what he had to say. Simply stated, the problem, as Joe saw it, was that the company had lost its sense of purpose, and in the process, confusion had crept into the workplace. Sales, profits, dividends, and productivity were all up. But the original spirit of the company had been jettisoned somewhere along the line. Among other things, Joe believed that increased productivity didn't automatically translate into an increase in quality, either with respect to products, services, or workmanship. When the company first started, there had been a company-wide commitment to excellence. Now, people were far less concerned with the quality of craftsmanship and workmanship than they were with promotions, pay increases, and rewards, with little consideration being given to whether the nature of the products and services being offered actually provided customers with what the latter needed, rather than with what some wunderkind in advertising tried to convince the public it needed or wanted. Indeed, more and more, hype had replaced any inclination on the part of management to search for the truth and provide customers with accurate information about whether or not the company's products and services could deliver as advertised. Furthermore, things were moving in another disturbing direction. Although originally the organization had emphasized the importance of being good corporate neighbors, over the last three or four years Joe had witnessed a variety of scandals unfold involving practices that were not only adversely affecting the quality of life within the communities where different branches of the company resided, but these practices were generating a large number of potential ecological problems as well. Strategies had been devised by a troika of lawyers, accountants, and board members to either escape paying taxes altogether, or which sought to create various forms of financial, legal, political, and economic intimidation of communities if the latter did not give the company an array of tax, union, and environmental concessions. Such tactics might make sense at the annual meeting of stockholders, where the amount of dividends received was the altar at which many of them worshipped. But given that the company had been founded largely on an idea of being in the business of helping people and communities improve the quality of their lives rather than just profits, Joe could only shake his head with sadness in relation to the zeitgeist which pervaded 
the company now. In addition, many of the latest technological breakthroughs which were being touted by the company unfortunately seemed to have a dark side to them. Not only was the physical environment at risk, but equally importantly, perhaps more so, the mental, moral, and spiritual environments of customers was being threatened by the shoddiness of the principles, techniques, methods, and ideas which were at the heart of the SLA approach to learning and education. The people in charge of research were enthusiastically committed to all manner of information processing technology. However, almost none of them had any idea of how to identify wisdom amidst the wealth of data which their technology could crunch. They had lots of theories. They lacked knowledge about what relation their theories had to reality. Cutting edge, innovative, and heuristic were the corporate buzzwords. Truth didn't seem to be in its vocabulary. Finally, although in some ways employee morale was at an all-time high because of the high degree of local autonomy which characterized the company's management style, nonetheless at the same time there was an increasing amount of conflict, tension, and destructive competitiveness to which Joe had been witness, as employees often played a zero-sum game with one another. That is, there could only be one winner, and as a result, themes of self-interest and selfishness often wafted through the company corridors and offices like a toxic cloud of smog. Petty-minded company politics also often spoiled the atmosphere. All too many individuals would think nothing of sabotaging fellow employees if this would lead to career advancement. The more Joe thought about the problems facing the company, the more he got depressed. Moreover, to add insult to injury, very few people seemed to have any interest in trying to critically analyze the situation. They were too caught up in careers, power, social status, and bonuses. Originally, the company had come into existence in order to help students develop the skills and understanding necessary to become better human beings. Human beings who would be committed to the communities in which they lived, as well as the other communities that populated the larger world surrounding them. Originally, issues of truth, morality, character, identity, self-realization, and justice had been of paramount importance. Now, at the urging of his company, at least in its latest form, truth was being replaced by information. Morality was being supplanted by preoccupation with values. Character was being converted into personality. Identity had become engulfed by psychobabble. Self-realization was being transformed into the antithesis, namely ego enhancement. And justice was virtually brain-dead and on life support, thanks to the kind of interpretive framework his company was promoting through its text materials and software programs dealing with the Constitution. As Joe sat at one of the tables in the cafeteria, mulling over the manner in which the workplace had strayed far from the original intent of the company's founder, another parallel issue occurred to him. Just as his company was being guided by a set of principles that was something other than the vision with which the company had begun, so too 
many religions seem to have deviated significantly from their original teachings. More and more, Joe felt spirituality had been hijacked by theology, dogma, indoctrination, rigidity, exclusion, and enmity. Yet, love knows no theology. There is no dogma to kindness or generosity. Indoctrination cannot lead to understanding the truth, let alone being able to freely choose such truth. There is nothing rigid about forgiveness, tolerance, or patience. Empathy and compassion are inclusive, not exclusive. And what does peace or beneficence have to do with enmity? Like many of the employees of his company, Joe believed that all too many religious people had become preoccupied with issues of reward and punishment, heaven and hell, and not enough with commitment to excellence or to the manner in which quality of life for both the individual and the community was rooted in service to God and creation, rather than in a system of bonus incentive arrangements. In fact, if one's worship of divinity were dependent on the receiving of a reward in exchange for worship, then really what was being sought, the reward or divinity? And if the former is the answer, then what does that say about the precise nature of one's worship, that is, who and what were being worshipped and why? Furthermore, like his company, many religions, at least in their modern format, no longer appeared to be good corporate neighbors. They often didn't seem to care about what destruction they brought upon the people and communities they were supposed to serve, or about whom they hurt as long as their opinions, agendas, politics, and prejudices prevailed, while the accursed heretics and infidels, that is, anyone who didn't believe as they did, were smitten down by those who fancied themselves to be the agents of the divine despite a disconcerting absence of evidence to support their allegation other than their own self-serving testimony. Joe believed spirituality had started out as a way of helping people struggle towards experientially realizing the closeness of their relationship to divinity, as well as bringing to fruition the unique spiritual potential which had been bequeathed to each human being. Spirituality, he felt, originally had been intended to provide people with a way to improve the quality of their lives, both individually and collectively, by emphasizing the importance of qualities such as love, forgiveness, kindness, generosity, sincerity, honesty, humility, self-sacrifice, tolerance, forbearance, patience, courage, modesty, persistence, and beneficence. Joe didn't see how there could be any legitimate room for theology, dogma, indoctrination, rigidity, exclusion, and enmity in any of this. And yet, just as his company had slipped from its moorings over the years, so too spirituality seemed to have been cut adrift from the principles that traditionally had anchored it. Now, self-centeredness, cutthroat competitiveness, and zero-sum games appeared to dominate the interaction among many religious traditions, just as such things ruled Joe's company. He suspected the decline in his company's moral profile was just one of the many problematic ramifications that had arisen because of the way all too many people were pursuing religion as currently conceived, 
rather than is originally intended. He believed the same was probably true of many other facets of life, from politics to family life to education. From the outback of Australia to the rainforests of South America, from the frozen tundra of Siberia to the plains of Serengeti, 
from the Himalayans of Asia to the white cliffs of Dover, from the geysers of Yosemite to the glaciers of Antarctica, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. Today's meditative essay is entitled, Devolution. Controlled evolution is the next stage of human progress, or so some people seem to suppose. According to this sort of perspective, exciting new developments are happening in more and more fields. This is generating a synergistic collusion of physics, genetics, biochemistry, medicine, economics, technology, engineering, and mathematics. All these fields are playing off one another as well as converging in complex, breathtakingly beautiful new ways as they spin their golden threads at faster and faster rates. The discoveries and inventions emerging from the dynamics of this dialectic will be woven into the fabric out of which human destiny will be cut. Furthermore, we will be free to design whatever pattern we like. This vision for the relatively near future is lent support by the unbelievable technical advances being made virtually every day through dazzling cascades of human ingenuity and creativity. Knowledge is said to be expanding as never before in human history. Some claim the elimination of all disease and congenital disabilities is near at hand. The genetic re-engineering of the human being into the next phase of evolution seems to be coming less a conjecture of science fiction and more a function of technical feasibility. The meteor lab of today supposedly is laying the foundations for the multifaceted, interactive, integrated knowledge labs of the future. We will be able to take control of our own educations throughout our lives. Moreover, this world will be electronically wired in ways which will lead, or so the story goes, to greater and greater empowerment. Such technological empowerment will translate into enhanced freedom for all human beings. The discordant counterpoint to the above rhapsodizing is the actual conditions of the world. For the vast majority of people, the world is not a very pleasant, safe, healthy, or empowering place in which to live. Only an extremely small and exclusive proportion of the world's population controls and consumes most of the land and resources of Earth. The gap between rich and poor has evolved into an apparently unbridgeable canyon. Indeed, the distance separating the rich and the poor is increasing at a rate rivaling, if not exceeding, the expansion of technical knowledge. There does not exist in the world today either enough money or natural resources to allow the promises of a brave new world to be extended to the majority of people. This trend only will be exacerbated as we move into tomorrow. Arable land is disappearing along with rainforests. Species both known and unknown are being eliminated every day, and the rate of extinction seems to be accelerating. Non-renewable resources are being consumed presently at rates which probably will exhaust those resources towards the middle of the next century. Global economic competition is heating up in ways that merely advance our date of encounter with the critical point of exhaustion. 
The technological expertise necessary to generate the relatively clean energy of fusion reactions on a commercial basis is not yet available. In fact, we don't seem to be close to the sorts of breakthrough in this area which would make fusion reactors practically realizable in the near future. A number of other relatively safe alternatives have been explored to some extent as potential sources of energy. However, for a variety of economic, commercial, and technical reasons, none of these alternatives is currently considered a desirable way of meeting the large-scale energy needs being projected for the future. We are left with the problematic energy production of fission reactors. The challenge of dealing with spent fuel rods in a safe way has not yet been fully resolved. There are downsides to virtually every proposal for disposal. Moreover, there is a very real risk of updated versions of the Three Mile Island and Chernobyl disasters on the horizon. This is especially so in the former Soviet Union. But one should not discount such a possibility in relation to nuclear facilities in other parts of the world. More and more pressure is being placed on the world's various ecosystems. Water, land, and air are under constant siege by a devilishly complex array of salvos from an endless variety of toxic substances. The holes in the ozone layer are getting bigger. The food chain is being compromised from top to bottom. Global warming has a whole set of potentially problematic, if not disastrous, ramifications for, among other things, weather patterns, food production, coastal ecologies, and quite a few cities and people. Despite the attempts of industry and producers of fossil fuels to avoid being fingered for substantial culpability in the observed trend in global warming, the evidence against them continues to accumulate. Furthermore, everyone who earns a living off such enterprises or consumes their products deserves a proportionate share of responsibility for the problems of global warming and pollution generated by those industries. Few, if any of us, have clean hands on this issue, although some people may be more culpable than others. The manufacture and distribution of weapons around the world is a growth industry. Its rate of growth is exceeded perhaps only by the enterprise of death which has spun off from the weapons industry. People are being slaughtered in regional hostilities at unprecedented rates. The amount of carnage is, in no small measure, due to the contributions ensuing from technological advances in weaponry. Whether through the effects of fierce global economic competition or through the production of pollution as collateral damage resulting from such competition, or through the manufacture and distribution of weaponry, more and more of us, both directly as well as indirectly, are making a living off the death of others. We are finding newer and better ways to kill one another through our vaunted human ingenuity and creativity. New emergent viruses are making their presence felt in increasing numbers. We have little or no way of treating these highly infectious and frequently fatal diseases. In addition, we are in serious danger of losing many of the battles we thought we had won years ago with the introduction of a host of miracle drugs. New deadly strains of antibiotic-resistant diseases are showing up all over the world. Modern governments and corporations often solve problems by creating other problems. Like sweeping dust from one location to another, there is the appearance of change, but the underlying situation, despite the changes, still remains largely the same. The overall level of problems has not been reduced, 
and all too frequently is even increased. World debt, national, corporate, and individual is increasing. Many cannot even look after the interest charges accruing from their debt, to say nothing of the principal involved. Governments, currencies, communities, businesses, and individuals around the world are being buffeted about by the vagaries of the debt issue. Almost everybody has a theory, but there are no proven solutions. In the meantime, government services are being cut, businesses are being downsized, individuals and companies alike are declaring financial insolvencies with startling frequency. Countries are threatening to default on their national debts. Many people believe these events are not harbingers of the darkness just before the break of a better economic day. Instead, many believe these lean mean times mark the beginning of the economic business version of nuclear winter for millions, if not billions of people. Long-term structural unemployment has become a fact of life in many countries. Real salaries for most people are decreasing. Poverty is increasing. For many people, health care is becoming less affordable. Hunger and homelessness are on the rise. Many countries are falling apart. Numerous governments are in disarray. Infrastructure is degenerating. A flood of communities are decaying. Far too many families are becoming dysfunctional. More and more individuals are becoming increasingly angry, frustrated, bewildered, confused, impatient, and intolerant. There is precious little in any of the foregoing which suggests empowerment for the overwhelming majority of people in the world. Various degrees of enslavement would seem to be more in keeping with the reality of things in the world. Indeed, most of the people of the world spend their lives empowering others to empower the few. These days we hear a great deal about information technologies and sciences. This information is being upgraded as we switch over to knowledge-based technologies. Unfortunately, nowhere on the drawing boards does one find blueprints or specifications for a wisdom-based system. We are burying ourselves beneath our own technologically and scientifically produced information and knowledge, but we have not come up with the sort of wisdom circuit boards which would permit us to upgrade our systems so we can dig ourselves out from beneath our cleverness. One does not have to be an expert in black holes to grasp the fact we are all being irrevocably drawn towards the event horizon of a man-made black hole of crushing proportions. The closer we come to the event horizon, the greater will be the distortions to which we shall be subjected, and the fewer will be the degrees of freedom within which to maneuver. Synergy is usually thought of in terms of a positive and constructive confluence of events, However, we should not overlook the negative and destructive possibilities which may result from a confluence of forces and events. Contrary to the pronouncements of the champions of technologized modernity, we are not on the verge of a utopian millennium. Rather, we are on the precipice of an abyss of self-destruction. The evidence for this is pervasive and undeniable. To talk of controlling our future evolution seems ludicrous when we cannot even control our present selves. In fact, we are so far out of control, there is considerable question whether or not the downward spiral of devolution which is transpiring on all levels, from individual to ecological, has too much momentum to be reversed. If we have not yet passed beyond the point of no return, there are many who feel we have precious little time left in which to turn things around. 
From the perspective of Sufi masters, the outward condition of the world is but a reflection of our inner spiritual condition. There are problems in the life of the external world because there are problems in our spiritual lives. The two are functionally related. According to the practitioners of the Sufi way, the difficulties of the outer world cannot be addressed until we have addressed the inner spiritual problems. We can spend all the money and energy we like, and we can pass all the legislation which seems appropriate, and we can use all of the science and technology which is available to us, and we can consult all the business, financial, and economic models on which we can lay our hands, and none of this, in whatever combination, will bring about the removal of the difficulties in question. When our worldly problems continue to resist treatment, we often believe all we have to do is either tinker about and attempt to improve existing methods of treatment or discover some new theoretical approach of the right sort. The masters of the Sufi path suggest that if we look at things in either of the above two manners, our efforts will bear few, if any, fruitful results. Sufi masters point out the answers to our questions and problems have always been within each of us from the very beginning. The understanding of these answers depends on our activating and realizing the potential of our spiritual identities and capacities. The process of spiritual understanding is a matter of unfolding or unveiling, not evolution, biological, cultural, or spiritual. The very first human beings to walk on the earth were as capable in this respect and perhaps even more so than their modern day counterparts. Collectively and individually we are in the mess we are in because in general we have permitted our intentional consciousness and understanding to undergo a process of devolution or degeneration. This has led to further and further away from our spiritual essence. Our essential capacity and identity are, according to the Sufi masters, the only means to which we may, God willing, extricate ourselves from our current situation, both individually and collectively. Consequently, our hope lies not with learning how to control our evolution. Our hope and salvation rest with eliminating the forces which sustain and nurture the process of devolution currently undermining our spirituality, and as a result, destroying us and the earth. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Mm-hmm.